civilization is being sacrificed for the opportunity of a very small number of people. We urgently need financial, political and social innovations that enable us to overcome this structural dependency on growth. We need to change the system. This isn't cleaning up the beaches in the case of plastic a little bit faster. That's vital, that has to be done. But you need to stem the flow. Gosimon explores sustainable change and the women inspiring it. Who are they? What made them who they are? How do they read the world they live in? Our guests share their story, roots, passions and hopes for the future. They tell us more about the alternatives and strategies they developed to tackle climate change. Welcome to this 21st episode of the podcast. I would like to start by thanking you. We are finding great joy thinking that more women's voices, ideas and stories are shared and heard a bit more widely and that it resonates with you. To help us grow and amplify their work further. And if you enjoy our independent self-funded podcast, you can now connect to our participative financing platform page and tip us with as little as a dollar. More information can be found on our website, gosimon.org. Now I would like to read a short excerpt of the book Feminism or Death by Françoise Daubonne, 1974. Therefore, with a society at last in the feminine gender meaning non-power and not power to the woman, it would be proved that no other human group could have brought about the ecological revolution because none other was so directly concerned at all levels. And the two sources of wealth, which up until now have benefited only the male, would once again become the expression of life and no longer the elaboration of death, and human beings would finally be treated first as persons, and not above all else as male or female, and the planet, in the feminine gender, would become green again for all. In this episode of the podcast, we will explore how a feminist degrowth approach can alleviate ecological and gender injustices. Our Simon today is Corina Dengler. Corina studied economics, development studies, and socio-ecological economics in, and policy in Vienna, Moscow, and Quito. Her research focusing on making degrowth more feminist and how care can be organized in a degrowth society. With Corina, we talked about why degrowth is ecologically necessary, the need for a gender-equitable society transformation, degrowth and the global south, and the need to find out what a good life is. Hi, Corina. Hey, Roxanne. My first question is about your roots. I was curious to know where you grew up. I grew up in southern Germany, in Bavaria, in a region called uh, the Bavarian Forest. It's a very beautiful region nature-wise. It's also a very conservative region people-wise, one could say. And I grew up there in a, as an only child in a working class family. I think I can say I was a very loved child, but my parents really had to work a lot. Both of them worked in factories. I grew up, like at least for the first couple of years, a lot with my grandma who lived next door, also a very compassionate woman, a very religious woman also, but a very, like, she was very inspiring to me as a kid, definitely. 
Do you have any specific memories, things that you remember fondly or, or not? I remember very fondly that, well, <laughs> it's actually a bit sad because like there weren't any kids around. Like there wasn't really a neighborhood. So I grew up and I was starting to read books really early. So I think my very fond memories of, as a child have to do a lot with, with reading books, with exploring books, exploring other worlds. How could you describe uh, your relationship with nature and how it has evolved over time? So I think my relationship with nature is actually influenced by where I grew up because as I said like it's a very it's very pristine nature we have there. As a child I always like I grew up right next to the forest and I really loved just walking into the forest the silence and the, the leaf. I really enjoyed it but I think I only realized that it was something special when when I went away because then like obviously in teenage years you would think oh it's also a bit boring and you would prefer to live in a city and like now I'm living in a city and I really really enjoy many things about living in the city but sometimes I really miss just walking out and standing in the midst of the forest as well. And how did you come across climate change but also uh, feminism and degrowth? What was the process of discovering those concepts? Yeah, I think you're right. I think it really was a process. Like, um, so obviously, I think as for everybody, it started in high school education. You start learning about climate change, about greenhouse gas emissions. But it wasn't so tangible for me. I, I think the first time I realized how much we're destroying our planet was through documentaries. And then when I traveled after high school in Latin America and I saw a lot of destruction in the Amazon forest. And I like think that was the first time that it got really tangible for me that it's not just like you're learning in chemistry about all the processes, but it, it's so real. And that's also when I started to engage in environmental activism and read more about how, like, I studied economics. So when I studied economics, I always wondered, like, how does nature go into those equations? And it only goes in there as a resource, as a dead resource. And that's probably when I started to engage more also in alternatives. And I discovered ecological economics and later on. I think it was in 2012 or 13, I heard for the first time about degrowth. And then it was still a process to become a degrowth scholar activist. But I immediately realized that something that's at the root of the problems we have, at the root of climate change, that we're living in a system that devalues nature. And so you were asking me to also make the link to feminism. It also devalues unpaid care work, which is mostly carried out by women. So it was for me. It's maybe five or six years ago when I was still studying in university. I was, I think, at the end of my undergrads or beginning of my graduate studies. And I, for the first time, realized how the exploitation of women and the exploitation of nature, how it's kind of a parallel exploitation. And did uh, feminism come before degrowth in your intellectual evolution? I think it's really important to see that or at least that's my understanding of it, that both feminism, environmentalism, both are like practice first and theory second. So I think I was a feminist activist before, or I was aware of feminism from the activist side, from the side of literature before degrowth. But I started to engage academically with feminism after I discovered degrowth. 
my master's, my graduate studies was on socio-ecological economics. And I was super disappointed as a feminist to find, okay, there's no feminist theory, nothing that links it. So I did this after of my PhD. Although it's gained some traction in the recent years, really, could you still please remind us what the central thesis of degrowth is? The central thesis of degrowth is to create social well-being within our planetary boundaries. For me, it's really important to always trust that I don't only see it as like we're having an ecological crisis, but we're really having a socio-ecological crisis and degrowth tries to merge those two fields of crisis and tries to find a solution. To my understanding, degrowth is kind of a second wave of radical growth critique in the sense that we already in the 1970s with the limits to growth report and ecological economics emerging as heterodox economic stream of thought. We also already had a first wave of radical ecological growth critique. But then it somehow got forgotten. Like then in, in 1987, we had a Brundtland report saying like, oh, well, we can have sustainable development, we can have growth and sustainability. Now we even have the discussion of having green growth, having growth for sustainability. So I think the discourse shaped from this very fundamental thesis since the 1970s that it's really growth, economic growth versus sustainability. And degrowth builds on this first wave of radical ecological growth critique and can be said to be like a second wave of this, but it also incorporates other streams. Like it's not only about ecological growth critique, it's also about feminist growth critique, about critique of industrialism. It's really funny because when people ask me what degrowth is, I sometimes start by saying what degrowth is not, because like there are so many misunderstandings about the terms. So I think for me, it's really important to say that degrowth is not a poorly economic concept, but it's something much broader. It's an inter and even transdisciplinary discourse between academia and activism. It's also not about negative growth within a growth paradigm, but it's about really challenging this very growth paradigm that says that economic growth is the highest goal of economic policy and and another thing which is really important, it's not across the board degrowth. It doesn't mean that every region or every sector everywhere should degrow, but rather to have selective degrowth in, for example, the most dirty industries and in the most affluent world regions. You've mentioned green growth, which uh, we are all the political plans at the moment, the economical plans that we are seeing in response of COVID are in spite of. Uh, material use and emissions are uh, tightly coupled to GDP. Some studies have modeled insane policy responses like a really high carbon tax uh, plus a resource extraction tax, but still find that if economic growth continues, material throughput will continue to rise instead of falling to sustainable levels. But still, degrowth is far from being politically acceptable. It's actually a word that we never hear in the voices of politicians. So how do you think this, this can change? Is it due to, is it a communications problem? Is it because of the, the misunderstanding you were highlighting? Yes, I think it is because of a communication problem. But I would also say that it is because it's uncomfortable. 
And I think that's more to the point that in our current economic and political system, we're not used to looking really at all comfortable truths in this is that the same in green is not enough. The promise green growth gives us is that we can just continue the way we're living right now, this imperial mode of living, and technology will save us. So that's very comfortable. You can you can gain elections with this. But you mentioned we're seeing like there are so many studies that show there is relative decoupling. Of course, technology has made so many things more efficient, but then also our total demand is rising. With the total demand, like so GDP is rising and our environmental destruction is rising as well. And there have been so many reports showing that while relative decoupling is it's very frequent, there is no absolute decoupling. Like we don't have any absolute decoupling showing that GDP is still rising and emissions, for example, stay the same or even go downwards. Politicians and also, we, we need to embrace it. There's no easy solution to this crisis. I don't think that changing the way we're communicating, because like there are many people saying, okay, maybe degrowth is a bit of a too negative word. So I'm always like, what about the positive words? What about sustainability? What about a sharing economy? Like we see how they are being co-opted also by capitalist thinking. Like we're having a sharing economy. It sounds beautiful. And it's Airbnbs. For me, it is actually that degrowth carries a radical critique already in its name, makes it harder to communicate it, but it also makes it harder to be co-opted. And I think we need those terms which already carry radical critique. On the other hand, that degrowth is being adopted more. You're totally right. It's far away from mainstream politics, but degrowth is being referenced in mainstream media. It's even been referenced positively by Bloomberg, like there has been in the European Union, like first degrowth conference and the Green New Deal for Europe by DiEM25 explicitly, decidedly acknowledges that what we need is not green growth, but degrowth. We also have to see that degrowth is a comparatively new discourse that emerged in the early 2000s and I think it really is there it really is a word since 2008 and it started to be a movement since 2008 and I think it already goes into more and more directions but you're right that it's much easier in academia and activism than just in politics to really go into this. Do you think the implementation of a universal basic income would be a way to get a majority of the population behind the idea of degrowth. Such a big word. It's a beautiful word. It's a radical word also, but still like there are so many different concepts behind it. In Germany, for example, we have even some very neoliberal proposal of a basic income, which has been proposed by neoliberals instead of having some other state benefits. So I think we really have to look at what we're talking about. But the proposal of universal basic income that really secures that livelihood security can be decoupled from wage work. I think that's a very, very important policy for degrowth. 
And not only for degrowth, also for feminism, I think work sharing or a working time reduction, like in degrowth terms, it would be called work sharing. But what I'm talking about is a working time reduction spent in wage work coupled with a universal basic income or some other measure to decouple livelihood security from wage work are very fundamental policies for degrowth transformation. Yes, what you are lighting it's, uh, is the recognition of the woman's hidden work. Yeah. Totally. I think if we had working time reduction spent in wage work for everybody, not just for women, because what we're having sometimes now is that we're like women work part time because they do most of the, as you call it, hidden work. And then uh, men work full time. And then we have a gender pay gap. We have a gender care gap. We have a gender pension gap. And what we should actually look at is how we can share this hidden work between all members of society alike not so much about how can we avoid this unpaid care work or how can we make it more efficient. Also, like washing machines, great inventions, but still it should also not be how can we outsource it to the market, to the state. It should be about how can we share this unpaid care work. We're seeing this a lot in the COVID crisis. It's at the centerpiece of the wealth of our societies is care work, paid and unpaid care work. And how can we share this responsibly among all society members and not just women? I think it's a very pressing issue. And I think that a universal basic income and working time reductions is really policies, not as only policies like recognition. It's also a discursive, like you need discursive and material recognition. But I think it's it's a good starting point. You've just submitted your PhD on feminist futures and degrowth. In your conclusions, you warn against believing that a social ecological transformation is automatically gender equitable. So you invite to merge the two, degrowth and feminism, together to get the results we, we want to see. Can you explain what are the current gaps in the degrowth theory and the challenges you face in making feminism an integral part? of the degrowth movement. In my master's, I really felt a great lack of feminist economics in there, and I started to learn about degrowth. I went to a degrowth summer school in Barcelona. The thing is that I think most degrowth advocates would also say that they are feminists, because like degrowth, it's about social justice, and then it's also about gender justice. But gender justice in this way is, it's an add-on. It's We're about environmental justice and we're about social justice. Oh, yeah, and that's also because of this, we're also about gender justice. And what I've been trying to argue in my PhD is that feminism as an add-on, it's simply not good enough. Patriarchy is a, it's a system much older than capitalism. Like under capitalism, it has a very specific form, but we cannot just think that if we're changing economic paradigm like patriarchal continuities would just dissolve automatically. So that was the first issue I was kind of facing, trying to see or explain that I think that we really need to be integrally more feminist. And luckily, when I started my PhD, or even the year before, at the 2016 Budapest conference, there were quite some degrowth scholars, activists feeling the same way. And we founded the Feminisms and Degrowth Alliance Network. Many degrowth scholars like call for a more integrally feminist degrowth paradigm. I think that was very helpful for me that it was not just me realizing that. 
but that it's really many people like debating, discussing, trying to push for a feminist degrowth agenda. And then the second thing, which is really helpful, I think, is that there's so much work to draw on. Like we don't have to reinvent the wheel at all. Like there has been feminist critique of economics, of science, of growth. Ecofeminism worked from the 1980s, from, worked from the 1990s in feminist ecological economics. The question we need to ask ourselves in, in the degrowth discourse is why have we structurally forgotten the feminist critique of science? We're so much drawing on the ecological um, critique of growth and obviously degrowth emerged out of this ecological growth critique. But since there are many other growth critiques, and especially in feminist ecological economics and materialist feminism, like those scholars have been really on the forefront of saying that how ecological attraction and care crisis fit together so we can draw on this work, I think. One of the pushbacks that we hear about uh, degrowth very often is that uh, it's unsuited for the global South, who hasn't contributed at all to the situation, at all, a little bit, but very marginally, to the ecological situation we are in. But some ecological economists uh, argues that economic growth is not the solution for the global South either, because the economic model we live in produces inequality. What do you uh, respond to this type of pushbacks? You are you already mentioned that like growth, economic growth and what we call development, it's not nature made. It's like not for the global south either. What we're seeing is that the growth strategies haven't benefited many, many countries and like social discrepancies haven't gotten away. But that's not what degrowth is about. Like degrowth is very decidedly not about telling the global south what to do as we're now doing it when we're saying like okay we're giving imf credits but only if there is a liberalization in the growth strategy but it's decidedly about taking our own environmental backpacks back to our own backyard because what we're doing right now is we're defending an imperial mode of living with this growth strategy we're defending a mode of living where it's totally reasonable for many countries to just dig out oil and think that it's important to see that the status quo is not defendable, like from a global justice perspective at all. That on the other hand, degrowth is seeking for transformative solutions to this crisis, but it seeks those solutions by saying that especially in the global north, in industrialized regions, it's especially there that we need to degrow. It's important to say that there are different positions within the degrowth discourse on the question like, what about the global south? And I think the most, there is one um, position that says the global north needs to degrow so that the global south can still grow and develop themselves, like not questioning those concepts. There is a position, which I think is the majority position, saying that the global north needs to degrow in order that the countries of the majority world can have conceptual space to find their own way of 
what is a good life, like their own trajectories. And it can be growth, it can be development, but it can also be something completely different. And I think it's very important to say that it's more about not talking for others, as we're doing it a lot in social development discourses right now, but it's about creating space, conceptual and material space for people to find their own trajectories. And I think we can, like in environmental justice movements, we can learn a lot from the mobilizations they have, for example, in South America. So I think it's really not degrowth as a vanguard discourse of people having a solution for environmental uh, mobilization, but actually pretty much the other way around. It's about also humbly listening. Here in Germany, we also like coal and we have resistance against coal mining. But the majority of the environmental destruction created by our imperial mode of living, it's faced in the global south. And there's lots of local mobilization against it, from which I think that we as scholars, as activists, but also as politicians should learn from. And I think that over the last month, there has been more and more activism on also the intersection of climate justice or injustice and racism. And I think that's something very, very important that we need to think about when people come forward with this argument that degrowth is unsuited for the global south. There's been a flurry of articles recently on the lack of imagination of our times, of our difficulty to imagine something else outside the paradigm of capitalism. It seems that we always fall back to some sort of a transformed capitalism, but still the same. Could you tell us what a feminist degrowth society could look like? We can prompt people's imagination, portray what a degrowth way of life could be. Yeah, I think that's an interesting question because you're totally right that transformation or utopia, we need both, right? We need the small steps and we need a big transformation, but it's most, much more easy and much more tangible to talk about the small steps, which could be like a working time reduction. And sometimes we forget to talk about the horizon. So I think that's a very interesting question. And well, as you might guess, I'm, I don't have the perfect answer or perfect vision for this, but in my imagination, very personally, a feminist degrowth society would mean that we have actually managed to create this social well-being and also gender justice within planetary boundaries. There is already some irreversible destruction in terms of our natural environment, but we have managed that this destruction doesn't go forward. We're trying to live in harmony with our natural surroundings and also with each other right now in the year, I don't know, 2048. Spending much less time in wage work because we don't need so much wage work. It's already like 150, now 100, but in the year 2048, maybe 150 years ago, Keynes has thought that in wage work 15 hours per week and we're right now 40 hours is still like the normal thing to do. Like we're in the year 2048, we're spend less time in wage work and we're going to have more time for other kinds of work, time for Care and it's not gonna be like this thing like there's wage work which is called work and then there's also hidden work but because of something like the universal basic income we will have the possibility to talk about work and mean all forms of work which is 
also unpaid care work, but also subsistence work, also work for the community, also political activism. So I think we have much more time for those things. And that's important because a lot of things are going to be much more work if we're trying to do some ourselves again and not resolve all of them via the market. It's going to be uh, very different in a sense that it's not going to be always faster, always more, but it's more about choose the things who are really dear to you. And then you can have those things like we're an industrialized society. It's not about telling people like to go back to live without all the things that they think they really need, but it's a radical re-evaluation of what actually makes individuals happy and a collective reassessment of how we can actually live together in a better way for humans and for nature. Federico De Maria suggests that we need to find out what we consider to be a good life. How do you imagine this to be determined in our current democracies? Do you think our current democracies are equipped to facilitate that dialogue between people so that we come together and define, well, what is priority? Because obviously at the moment, everybody is free to define his own priority. And if someone decides to, you know, its own priority is to take the plane pretty much every day. Well, that's a bit interrupted in times of COVID, but you see what I mean? Every, every individual is free to define his own way, his own good life. How do we bring people, everybody at the table and also globally, because obviously we are facing uh, global issues with the environment that needs a global response as well. Are our current democracies equipped for the dialogue we need for this collective re-evaluation? No, I think they aren't. Like we have representative democracies. But I think what we need or what I am, what we're talking about when we talk about degrowth, it's really about a bottom-up or we could also say a bottom-link transformation that really needs direct democracy. It needs a whole different understanding of coming together, collectively re bargain. Probably council democracies are the closest historically example we have of how this can work on a bigger level than just on a regional level. But I still think that we can see it a lot in social movements, how this can work. We could see it, for example, a lot in the Occupy movement or generally the anti-globalization movement and also in the climate movement. I think we have a lot of those practices which are really drawing on direct democracy and coming together in plenary meetings. And I think it doesn't necessarily have to be on a small scale, but I think we still need to, as you say, we still need to see like it's global issues. We need to come together globally. We need a multi-level governance. And I think the main impulse should come from the ground, should come from the people. We need to democratize our economies. And for the moment being, we also need different nation states coming together and um, talking about the climate crisis. I don't think so. the Paris Agreement is any kind of, we can see like almost no country all over the world will meet the goals in the Paris Agreement. So I don't think that's a solution, but I think it's still important that we're also, as long as we're still in the system we're having right now, to also see that we also need those uh, multi-level governance change the driver for a socio-ecological transformation, to my mind at least, comes from the bottom up. And it can be bottom linked in a way that we're saying we have 
for example, we're demanding a universal basic income from a state, but we're not thinking that transformative change comes from the state, but it can help us in some ways and others it can't because in other ways also states are criminalizing, for example, climate protests. I have this very instrumentalist view of the state in this sense and think that what we really need is bottom-up and bottom-linked solutions. In a paper you wrote with Lisa Marie Sibaka, which is titled Growth Pessimism but Degrowth Optimism, you highlight the fact that pretty much whatever we do now, we will face an inescapable degrowth. And you say the latest IPCC report is very clear about how little time we've left to change our ways of living in the face of climate change if we want degrowth by design and hence a socially just transformation towards sustainable society-nature relationship rather than degrowth by disaster. We need to embrace growth pessimism, but degrowth optimism. Could you explain this view? that whatever we do now, uh, we will degrow. Are you embracing a little bit in saying that those uh, people who study the collapse of our industrial civilization? Well, I mean, I think Lisa and me have not been referring to this directly. What we aim at saying is that against all those backgrounds and like the IPCC is one, but recently we had this really great decoupling debunk report showing that absolute decoupling just doesn't work. So what we're seeing is if we want to save the climate crisis, we need degrowth and it can be degrowth by design, which is a, a very hopeful scenario. Or there will be an ecological crisis that will lead us to degrowth by disaster in the long run, yeah. So the growth strategy, I'm not telling anything new. It's been clear since the 1970s. And actually, if you would ask children, like probably all children would tell you that very obviously infinite economic growth on a finite planet just cannot be possible. And we're pushing those boundaries and we're pushing them pretty hard. Probably even medium to long term, not only long term. It's inevitable that the economic system changes or that our ecological system will collapse. So when you see where we are heading and the succession of bad news and the direction of political response to the pandemic, which is to give more and more money to the industry and to perpetuate a system which is pretty much doomed. What are your thoughts? Where do you find the energy to still, you know, push for degrowth? How do you keep being uh, hopeful for the future? I think I like what Ernst Bloch has been saying about hope and optimism. Like what he's been saying is that hope is not optimism because it's not the conviction that something will turn out well, but it's the certainty that something makes sense regardless of how it turns out. So I think I'm not optimistic in a way that I think that we're going to have a degrowth transformation by 2025. And that's why I'm fighting for it. But it's rather, I want to live in a different society. I want to live in a society that is ecologically just, socially just. It's a feminist society. It's an anti-racist society. So, and I think that another world is possible and I gain my hope from activism around the world. I gain my hope from looking at climate activism from Black Lives Matters demonstrations. So I see that people all over the world are rising up against a system that structurally oppresses them. That's where I gain hope from, I guess. 
if you had a magic wand and could make one policy change, what would that be? Where would you start? That's difficult. Like on a like on a national level, I would say that it would probably be like something like a working time reduction or a universal basic income. But on a global level, I would even maybe start by paying reparations, paying reparations for actual colonialism, for environmental colonialism. So I think there's so much to it would probably be something like this on a global scale. Published in The Guardian, the title Amazon near tipping point of switching from rainforests to savanna, the climate crisis and the logging in the Amazon are leading to a shift from canopy rainforest to open grassland. This is becoming real, like those threats have been highlighted for years now. What are your thoughts when, when you, you read about those news? Are you actually reading the news on a very regular basis or are you also making an effort to stay away from it sometimes to keep your sanity? So I usually read the news. There are sometimes when I really feel that I don't want to read the news for a week, for two weeks, but I usually read the news. When I read the articles you shared with me the other day, well, it's this first article on the Amazon It's it's horrific. Like it's just absolutely horrific how environmental destruction goes on and we're seeing all those fires in the Amazon in the US. It's still so hard for people, I think, to grasp how it all fits together that climate change is driven by this imperial mode of living of ours, that we can actually do something to change it, like from the roots up. I've been living in Ecuador for a while and I've been working on new extractivism there, oil extraction in the Ecuadorian rainforest and the Ecuadorian part of the Amazon basin. For me, I've been talking, for example, to the indigenous leader um, Patricia Gualingua and had an interview with her talking about the resistance of the Sarayaku village there against relocation, against oil logging in their territories. And it gives me really a stomach ache and at the same time also hope to see on the one hand this destruction, on the other hand, the resistance against it. The second article was published on Bloomberg, Bloomberg Green, and it's called Exxon's plan for surging carbon emissions revealed in leaked documents, the internal projections uh, from uh, the largest oil producer, Exxon, show that they completely embrace the fact that the emissions will continue to increase. They are fully aware, obviously, that it has a, it has a play on global warming. They fully bet on a business-as-usual scenario. Again, your comments on that article. I mean, this article, it's a leak, right? It's documents leaked, yeah. but it's still not surprising. I mean, it's a big oil company in capitalism. <laughs> Some of those um, strategies, like, for example, as I said, I was working in, in Ecuador, and then I sneaked into a conference on oil and power, and it was crazy. Like, how many of them showed like the logos all was green all was like yeah we're trying to like deal with all um those climate change issues but then in the end they just aren't and it's not surprising that they aren't because it's a fossil fuel company in capitalism i find it really horrible and i think there should be much more regulations but i think as long as it's a private company unless there's a governmental response to moving away from fossil fuels i think it's not going to change 
I have a friend who's working on degrowth and small and middle-sized enterprises. And I think, Sarah, you sometimes also, not the norm at all, but sometimes um, companies really show commitment for the environment. But I think with multinational players, I mean, there is a reason that they are so big in the system. And Yeah, it's still, it's still governed by people, though. So it makes you wonder what can drive such such an attitude, such an irresponsible attitude. Do you think it's driven by the belief that technology will solve the problem at some point? Yeah, I think partly. But I also think that we have, I mean, you're saying it's governed by people, and that's certainly right. But what people are saying, it's the people from the top 1% of the world who are contributing most to climate change and will suffer the least, for sure. I think if we really hoped for change, we would need to democratize and socialize those companies so that the people who are actually suffering from climate change and who will actually suffer most have a say in, in those strategies. But I don't, I don't know. I don't expect a CEO from Exxon to think about those climate change issues in, in a bigger picture and totally change the strategy. I don't, I just don't believe in the transformative potential of multinational corporations. To conclude, do you have a book, a film, a movie, an art piece, something that you would like to recommend to our listeners? I have many. I could first of all recommend my all-time favorite novel. I haven't read it in, in like five or ten years, maybe even, and I think I should read it again and see if it's still my all-time favorite, but it used to be for sure, and it definitely made me a feminist in, in many ways. It's called The Golden Notebook. It's a novel, it's a very thick novel by Doris Lessing. Recommended very much. Someone I can recommend also very much is Ursula K. Le Guin, science fiction and fantasy author who recently died, like two years ago, I think, and she, but she, she's really one of the people who have showed me that if we are thinking about, for example, a degrowth imaginary, we want thinking about radical utopias again, like we can learn a lot from Ursula Kaliguin, for example, from her novel, um, The Dispossessed or For Waldis Forest. If someone wants to learn more about degrowth, there's this new book by Georgos Kallis, Susan Paulsen, Giacomo Dalisa, and Federico de Maria, The Case for Degrowth. It just came out a month ago, I think, and it's really good. Maybe something else than a book. I can I can recommend a TED Talk that has inspired me very, very much since the beginning of my um, studies. It's called The Danger of a Single Story by Chimamanda Adichie. It's a pretty, like, she got pretty famous since then, and probably most of um, the listeners of this podcast already know it. But if you don't know it, go have a listen. Like, it was really, really inspirational. Excellent. Thank you so much, Corina, for your time and your words today. Thanks a lot for having me. It's really an honor of being here. Thank you for listening. Credits to Karen Crossan, who edited and transcribed this episode. See you in two weeks. 